Welcome to Medicine Grand Rounds. It's great to see you all here this morning for our first Medicine Grand Rounds of uh, the calendar year. Um, unfortunately, we missed, our, missed what should have been our first. Um, but fortunately, we have a great speaker today, um, Dr. Corey Siegel, one of our own, an associate professor of medicine and of the Dartmouth Institute for Health Policy and Clinical Practice. He's the section chief of gastroenterology and hepatology and co-director of the Inflammatory Bowel Disease Center at DHMC. Corey received his medical degree from Tufts University School of Medicine, and we were fortunate to recruit him to DHMC for his residency and chief residency in internal medicine, which I remember well, <laughs> and his fellowship in gastroenterology. He went on to complete an advanced fellowship in inflammatory bowel disease at Mass General Hospital. And shortly after returning to join the DHMC faculty, he pursued a Master of Science degree in clinical and health services research at TEI. Corey's research interests include understanding risk and benefit trade-offs in the treatment of inflammatory bowel disease, developing models to predict outcomes in Crohn's disease, creating tools to facilitate shared decision-making, and improving the quality of care delivered to patients with IBD. He's been funded by the NIH, AHRQ, and the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation for this innovative work. He's lectured nationally and internationally, published numerous journal, journal articles and book chapters, and has served as a reviewer and on the editorial boards of major journals in his field. He's the founder of The Bridge Group, an international research collaborative of IBD investigators, and has been active in the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, including serving as co-chair of the Professional Education Committee and the Quality of Care Program. And this markedly abridged description of um, Corey's accomplishments conveys the impact that he's had nationally and internationally. Um, and I think as many of you in the room can attest, he's also had a tremendous impact um, in our medical center and department and at the medical school um, through his collegiality, through his mentorship of trainees and of junior faculty, and um, really through his role modeling of academic and clinical excellence. Having shared in the care of patients uh, with Corey, I can confirm that he really practices what he preaches um, when it comes to providing patient-centered care, and we welcome you today to tell us more about that. Thanks, Kelly. Good morning, everyone. Really an honor to be here. It's, it's a lot of fun to, uh, to have a chance to talk to you and show you really what I've been up to over the past uh, 10, 15, and now nearly 20 years uh, since I've been here. And, and let you know both what I'm thinking is going on in the world of inflammatory bowel disease, which is uh, not exactly where I want it to be, and that'll be part of my message, and also the ways we're trying to answer that, and the, taking the work from all of you here at Dartmouth and really learning from that and trying to translate it to how we can make that better and work in inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, the only relevant thing I, I think I should point out on the disclosure slide is on the bottom, which is around the product that I'll be showing you, or a tool that we developed called Prospect. And it's another interesting story and experience I've had learning about IP and uh, forming companies and, and how to try to get things out there. So that's something I just wanted to point out now as we get to it in the second uh, part of the talk. So the learning objectives are really to start with discussing why there's significant room for improvement in the care of IBD. We've made progress, that's for sure, but I think there's a lot, lot more that we can do in our field. And I'm frustrated of how far we could have come and how far I think we should have come and where we are right now. And I'll show you what I mean by that. I'll show you this tool called Prospect that we can use to personalize Crohn's disease decision-making. It's something that we've developed as an idea, then moved into a research tool, and now actually starting to use in practice, which is a really cool transition for me to see how it can actually help. 
and patient care. And then finally, I'll finish with a program called IBD Course, which is something, again, we've been working on for probably five, six, almost seven years now and trying to think through how we could actually not just write about quality of care in IBD, but how we can try to deliver better quality of care for patients with IBD. And really, I think the theme of this talk is we can do so much better. And as you know, patients you've seen with inflammatory bowel disease, they have new medications on their list. We're using the medications somewhat differently. There are articles in the New England Journal of Medicine all the time about breakthroughs in inflammatory bowel disease, but they're not getting to our patients. And the reasons they're not getting to our patients are varied, but I'll share with you why I think part of that problem is a real problem and how we at a place like Dartmouth have to help push that and ideas some of which we're working on and others really need to get out there so that we can not just get new medications approved but get them into the right patients at the right time in the care that we try to do with all of our patients for all diseases and this is critically important because our patients are really suffering with inflammatory bowel disease this this is something that we found on the internet uh, this wasn't one of my patients who drew it but this is a depiction of what their a belief of Crohn's disease is like for them. This is actually a patient of mine who's an artist, and I'm not sure how well you can see that, but it's this complex intertwining, connecting tubes that he said is exactly what he envisions his bowel must look like from his Crohn's disease. And then what was really interesting is this is from something called the Welcome Awards, which are scientific images that many of you have probably seen. This is the winning image from last year from 2017, this is called uh, Stickman, and this was an artist's depiction of what he felt like having Crohn's disease, which is a, uh, a, a persona made of sticks that had fragility to it that was about to break at any moment if the wrong wind came in, in a direction they didn't expect. So our patients are walking around, even when they look okay, in this state of, of angst that something terrible is going to happen to them and that they just don't feel right. And as you know, many of these patients look okay when you see them walking around. It's not like many of our sick patients in the hospital. They, they might look like any of us, healthy and walking, yet their insides are really making it difficult for them to do what they do. And that's what makes me passionate about these diseases. These patients are wonderful to work with and, and amazing people. And I know that we need to help them and get, again, the right medications to them at the right time because there's a lot that we can do. Part of my frustration is this was when Remicade was approved. It was 20 years ago, just about, that Remicade was first approved by the FDA for the treatment of Crohn's disease. And it was a huge breakthrough when this came. I barely remember it because this was also the year that I landed here as a medical intern. <laughs> this is actually within a month and a half of my arrival here as a medical intern. And John Ross and Kelly, you may recognize where this was taken. This is on Hal Sox's back porch, where he used to have the reception when we showed up. And some of you may remember uh, Dr. Michael Gruber, who's a pulmonologist, critical care doc now in, in Denver. And I, I remember knowing a little bit about Crohn's disease, and I probably was made to read the article that was published about Remicade at the time, Rinfliximab. But this is when the drug was approved. It was 20 years ago that we thought we had a life-altering drug to treat people with Crohn's disease. And the data would suggest that. It was a huge breakthrough in anything that we had uh, from them. And then it was 10 years ago that we finally started to learn how to use the drug. So this is now the famous top-down article that was published in 2008 in The Lancet. And what this showed was a totally transformative paradigm of how to treat Crohn's disease. The approach had been, that had been in all the textbooks until then, is treat your patient with prednisone, give them a little more prednisone and maybe some 5-ASAs, and then when they fail that, put them on immunomodulators like azathioprine and 6-mercaptopurine, 
And then when those fail, and only when those fail, you give them the good stuff. You give them biologic drugs, and in this case, infliximab was the first one that was approved. So that was in this randomized control trial, the step-up approach is the standard of care step-up approach. The top-down approach was as soon as patients were diagnosed, put patients on combination therapy with infliximab plus azathioprine. I, I do remember this one well, and I thought they were crazy, and I thought they would never recruit patients for it because I didn't think anybody would go for it. I didn't think any patient would think that it was okay to go on our big guns right away at diagnosis as opposed to waiting and sort of testing the waters and then slowly making your way up, which we were almost comfortable with. So this was the study design, and the results you can see, the, the most important ones are highlighted in orange there. There's a 20% delta in remission rates. That is the largest delta of any biologic study that has ever been published in inflammatory bowel disease. We don't have a drug that has ever showed a difference this big in a clinical trial. So just changing the paradigm, changing the treatment algorithm made such a huge change. You can see here, transformative, how many people took prednisone, and there were zero in the top-down strategy. Imagine you know, treating inflammatory bowel disease without the years of damage that we cause from corticosteroids. And then the thing that's actually the most impressive on here is how many had mucosal healing. It says 73% in the top-down group versus 30% in the step-up group. What that means is that two years later, two years after the study started, they did a colonoscopy, and in 73% of them, they couldn't tell that they had Crohn's disease because their bowel looked normal. Transformative, right? 2008. But it's been 10 years since we've been doing that. And then we learned a little bit more a few years later by another famous study in our field called Sonic, which said, well, wait a minute, do you really need two drugs or is it one drug? Can we just give either infliximab or azathioprine or another biologic for that matter or combine them? And I see William Rigby sat down. And so we stole this, of course, from the rheumatologists of, wait a minute, we have to be half as smart as the rheumatologists, which is hard. <laughs> I mean, we're just gastroenterologists. <laughs> And you can see that, indeed, we learned that using two drugs is, is better than one, and there are a lot of nuances to this, but the bottom line is we have good drugs that if we use them in the right combination at the right doses at the right time, we can make a huge difference in how we treat our patients. So this led to a project that we did over the past year and a half looking at actual utilization of these drugs across the United States. And we looked at a huge mixed-pair database that was fairly representative of patients across the U.S., and it's displayed in this uh, somewhat complicated to look at uh, what's called Sankey diagram. But let me walk you through it, because A, I think it's an interesting way to look at data, and B, I think it makes a really interesting point. So Sankey diagrams, if anyone hasn't seen these before, I think most haven't, because I hadn't until about a year and a half or two years ago, were developed after uh, a sea captain named Sankey, who's an Irish sea captain, who used these diagrams to demonstrate how steam energy flows through his steam engine to the rest of his ship. So you can imagine there's a central focus of where the energy comes, and then he showed how it gets distributed in different ways. And then this has been picked up by outcomes researchers to say, hey, this might be a neat way to show different sorts of data, in this case, utilization data or pathway data and how people use different drugs. So the way to read this is look along the left side, and you can see there's something like 16,000 patients with Crohn's disease, and again, a representative patient population from across the U.S. And the way I envision this is if you're coming to 
a, a bunch of different pathways you can walk down with your patient. Maybe you're holding, your, holding their hand or standing right next to them and say, hey, we can go down the steroid path, we can go down the biologic path, we can try five ASAs, here are the different ways we can treat you. And then if that doesn't work, we can weave on to a different path and try something else. And that's really what this is showing. So if you look at the top left here, you can see that a majority of these patients were started on corticosteroids or 5-ASAs. So this is first-line therapy for the treatment of Crohn's disease. And their doctor said, you're just diagnosed with Crohn's disease. This is what we're going to treat you with. And a vast majority of them, over 50% of them, either got put on corticosteroids or 5-ASAs. Now, I'll tell you that in 2005, there was a Cochrane analysis published that said we shouldn't be using 5-ASAs for Crohn's disease anymore because they don't work. And in fact, my favorite line is the last line of the, of the paper that says, in fact, we don't think we should even study this topic anymore because it's so obvious to us to, that, that they don't work. Yet, our colleagues across the country who are treating these patients, by and large, are using 5-ASAs and corticosteroids. And you say, well, that top-down study came out in 2008. It's been 10 years now. How many people are actually doing that and using combination early therapy, and I highlighted it for you here because you can't see it, but it's about 2 to 3% of patients are actually getting biologic therapy as first-line therapy. And combination therapy, it, it registers less than 1%. I mean, it's just a very small proportion of patients who are actually doing what we have evidence to show was a huge breakthrough 10 years ago. And you say, well, maybe it's an insurance problem. First line's a real issue. They must come second line. So second line, you can see, they grow a little bit. We're up to maybe 4 or 5%. And then you can say, well, this is only the first three lines of therapy. So first-line therapy, second-line therapy, third-line therapy, and these weaving lines are showing you how people are moving between those paths and what else they can do. Um, but it turns out that 63% of these patients only got corticosteroids ever, and some of them went through 10 cycles of, of corticosteroids. And they basically got prednisone, they got better, they came back, they got more prednisone, they got better, they came back, and just went through this up and down cycling of it. And you would think that eventually they're going to get biologic therapy, right? We have data, insurance companies approve it once you fail other therapies. You must think that a majority of patients finally get exposed to these drugs. But if you look over the lifetime of these patients, at least in this study, only 19% of them ever got biologic therapy for Crohn's disease. And for ulcerative colitis, it was only 6%. So there's some huge disconnect here that, again, frustrates me, that we have great drugs, treatment algorithms, 20 years of safety data, insurance companies that put up a bit of a fuss, but nonetheless we can get around that, and still we have less than 20% of our patients getting exposed to drugs that we thought were going to transform the way that we treat inflammatory bowel disease. So it brings us to whose fault is this? I mean, who's, who's not doing the right job? Is it patients? Is it doctors? Is it payers? I, I don't think it's payers. You know, I would say, and, uh, you know, my I, amazing IBD team in our group, I think we get probably 98% of things that we need for our patients. I, I won't say 100%, but it's darn close because we can make a case and argue with them, and you talk to the right people, and we eventually get the drugs. It requires a letter of medical necessity, talking to the medical director, but we're pretty good at this, and we get drugs for our patients. So they put up barriers, but that's not the whole story here. There's no way it's the whole story. This is part of it. Patients are definitely scared of these drugs, and you talk to patients and ask them what they're fearful of, and they say cancer, and they don't know exactly what they mean when they think about cancer and these drugs. If you really push them and say what kinds of cancer, they say, well, I don't know, cancer, cancer. And it's not their fault. I mean, you know, they, this is what they hear on, on 
pretty much any TV show that you watch now, you see commercials for biologic drugs where they're mumbling stuff at the end about dying of cancer. Um, but really what we're talking about specifically are, are large B-cell lymphomas and some skin cancers. And the rate of these, which I won't get into today, is very, very low. We're talking about six patients out of about 10,000 that are treated. But nonetheless, there's a huge emotional fear connected with this. But part of this, I think, are my colleagues. I mean, not our necessarily my colleagues here at DHMC, but our colleagues globally who just don't use these drugs at the right times for the right patients. One is they, they don't feel like they want to use biologics until patients prove that they need them. You know, you really want to be sick until you bring out your big guns. And I understand that connection, but it's probably the wrong connection to make when, when we look back on the data that I just showed you. This was interesting to me as I traveled around the country to talk about this topic, this fear of lawsuits is real. And if you Google infliximab, side effects, lymphoma, you know, it doesn't bring you to the CDC or Dartmouth-Hitchcock website. It brings you to a bunch of law offices, you know, who are trying to develop class action suits against doctors who are using these drugs. So I understand that, but it's, it's frustrating and it's hard to get around. We're not the only ones, of course, that are thinking there's litigious activity against you. Um, but the, the other part is it's not easy to get these drugs started and, and maintained. And part of it is this is sort of how I envision this happening. You know, when I say to a patient, hey, I think we want to start you on biologic therapy, I kind of see this in front of me of, oh, man, look at all these different things we have to do. First, we have to make sure that we actually diagnose the disease correctly and understand their extent of disease. We want to know if it's diffuse small bowel disease or just two inches of, of Crohn's disease. Then we have to have this discussion about risks and benefits, which with, with starts with, I'm scared about cancer, right? So uh, uh, immediately, it's a difficult conversation to have. And then we get into the whole fun of, this is the part when they're walking over fire, of prior, <laughs> prior authorization and coverage. And, and then we actually have to get it going and manage their expectations that, you know, you finally agree to go on this drug, that the day you get an infusion or an injection, you're not going to be all better like before you were diagnosed with Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis. So it's really a tough struggle. And this is not a 20-minute office visit. I mean, this is really a, a difficult first conversation when we're trying to get over that hump of getting the right drug started. So I do understand this. And I also understand the luxury of what we have here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock and the amazing team that I have to work with who do a lot of this work for us. But, you know, for most gastroenterologists in the country, they're doing a lot of this, which I like to call phone-on-the-shoulder medicine. So this is when my colleagues across the country are paged. And for, predominantly, gastroenterologists are in the endoscopy suite. They're not in the clinic. And their pager goes off, and the endoscopy nurse kind of reaches into their gown and grabs the pager and says, oh, it's, it's your nurse, right? <laughs> and then you dial the phone, and they put the phone on the shoulder, and you're actually trying to do a colonoscopy. And you say, you know, what's going on? They say, Mrs. Smith is on the phone, and she's flaring again from her Crohn's disease. Say, well, what did we do last time for her? Or she says prednisone made her feel better. She's asking for prednisone. And you say, okay, sure, just put her on prednisone. I'll see her in the office in, in, a, in a couple of weeks. And then Mrs. Smith comes into the office. And guess what? She feels better because prednisone makes everybody feel like a superhero. And then she, you say, well, maybe we should start biologic therapy. And she says, oh, come on. I, I really am scared of it. Can I just stay on prednisone and see how I do? And the path of least resistance is sure. You know, just stay on prednisone because that is the easier thing to do. And I unfortunately think a lot of GI care is given this way. And you already heard what an obstacle course we have to go through every time. This is a 
an important moment in sitting down with the patient and really having them understanding their disease and understanding their options for treatment, and it's very hard. And I do give full credit and respect for Sid Parker, uh, who posed for this picture for me. This is not Sid giving phone-on-the-shoulder medicine, but when I thought of this concept, he was kind enough to, uh, to pose uh, for me. He was doing a colonoscopy, so it probably wasn't a great idea, but he was very, very careful. So thanks, Sid, if you're here. Uh, so let me get into this idea of why I think we need to think about personalized care, because there's no way that every patient's the same with inflammatory bowel disease, and specifically with, with Crohn's disease. So it's not as simple as just reviewing the clinical trials that I showed you and said, oh, top-down therapy, early combination therapy, two drugs, let's start it. We, we have to think about treating individual patients and not a group of clinical trial subjects. And to, to drive this home, we did an interesting study a couple of years ago with some friends of mine at Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York where we looked at all of their patients who came through the Mount Sinai Medical Center IBD clinic, which is, by the way, where Beryl Crone was. So this is a you know, famous IBD clinic that's been there longer than any IBD clinic on the planet. And they looked at all of their patients who were getting biologic therapy. And the question was, how many of them would have actually fit into any clinical trial ever for biologic therapy? So are the patients in clinical trials representative of the patients that we're actually treating in our clinic? And you could see that only a small proportion, it was actually 31% of patients on biologics, would have made it into any clinical trial ever for inflammatory bowel disease. So to think that we can just read a book chapter or pull out the latest you know, Cochrane review and think that's what's going to dictate our therapy just isn't going to work for these patients because that's not real life. The real life is most of the patients we're treating with these drugs were never actually studied in how they do with these drugs. So it's an unfair assessment to say, oh, we've got this totally figured out. So we do have to think about how we choose IBD therapy for individual patients. And there's no way that every patient needs top-down or early intensive combination therapy. And we know there are a whole different range of flavors of patients that we see in all of the diseases we all take care of, but in particular with Crohn's disease. So we need to determine who has high-risk versus low-risk disease. And we have to help patients, I think, and providers understand this risk. Because if we can't risk stratify them early, how are we to know which are the ones that would do fine on maybe no therapy or maybe some uh, an annual or every three-year course of corticosteroids and they'll be fine versus the ones that are going to be in the operating room within the next six to 12 months. And we've all seen those patients and there are probably a couple sitting in the hospital right now. So really what we're trying to do is we want to identify patients before they have severe disease, not react to severe disease. And we want to identify patients who are at risk for severe disease. So we need to help patients understand the implications of their disease. And this is where I think we fall down as a field, uh, at least in IBD. I, I bet you this falls down in a lot of your fields as well, is that you could talk to patients about benefits and risks of drugs, but talking to them about the future risk of their disease, when it's a disease they never heard of that's totally brand new to them, is really hard. And we don't want people to be too scared of their disease, and we don't want people with IBD walking around thinking, oh, man, this is terrible, what's going to happen to me? But I think they do need to be a little bit more scared than they are. And we do a really good job telling them everything's going to be okay and we have great drugs and it's going to be fine. But if you do that a little too much, then maybe taking your shots every two weeks or taking those pills that have a black box warning on them that say they cause cancer doesn't make that much sense to you. And when you hear a commercial that your doctor forgot to tell you about tuberculosis and you just heard a commercial that says you might get tuberculosis, it's not so easy to understand why if you don't quite understand what's, what may happen to you if you don't go on, on these medications. So we need our patients to have enough respect 
and our, and our colleagues for the significant, irreversible, and destructive na nature of bowel inflammation. You only get one small bowel. We, we could argue you can live without your colon, and bowel transplants are possible. If you've ever seen a patient with a small bowel transplant, it's probably the sickest patient you ever took care of. I mean, they really, it's, it's not a good procedure. So maintaining that small bowel, particularly in these patients with Crohn's disease, is critically important. So really what we're trying to do is predict the future. Can we meet patients in the office and use some sort of you know, process to understand which are the ones that are gonna really rapidly progress and, and who are the ones that we may have some more time that we don't have to rush quite as much. So this is what motivated the work that I've been working on with an amazing group of people really over the past 10 and almost 15 years now and trying to develop this prediction tool so if we meet patients in the office, can we start to understand which ones might do just fine with, with either mild therapy or no therapy, and, and who might progress rapidly so that we want to get right on top of them with, the, with our best treatment algorithm that, again, we learned about now 10 years ago. So this work uh, has really been a labor of love for years, starting with an idea that you know grew to a research project, and as I mentioned now, and I'll show you, starting to use in clinical practice, I'll give... Uh, everyone on this list credit. I will tell you that the brains behind this, for any of you who know my family, is the third author there, for sure, who's my wife, Lori, who's the brilliant mathematician who's really helped us design this model and, and how to roll it out. And I'll show you what I mean as we get there. Because this uses a different technique than the standard statistics that we use. It uses something called system dynamics analysis, which turns out to be a great way to communicate with patients. It wasn't what it was designed for, but what it is is a methodology that addresses this inherent dynamic complexity and interactions between different variables. That doesn't sound that different from multivariate regression analysis, but what's different is that it provides this real-time, individualized prediction of outcomes. It uses a very simple input control panel that I'll show you, and then it graphically conveys outcomes over time. And it also has the ability to evolve so that as new data become available in the field, you can add those new data to the model and get the model working even better than you thought it was working in the first place. Again, this isn't what this statistical tool was meant to do, but it turns out that it turns complex clinical data into patient-friendly results in a way that you can communicate with your patients as opposed to showing them the very complex mm -hmm. statistics that go into this. And again, this isn't something that I nearly could have done on my own. And in addition to collaborators here and at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in, in Los Angeles, uh, my wife and her group is called Climate Interactive. Libba is a really cool group because they're run by a guy named Jesse Dillon, who happens to be Bob Dillon's oldest son, who's a businessman. They have Crohn's disease in the family, and they've dedicated time to really developing communication tools around all of medicine, but had a particular interest in inflammatory bowel disease. And, and luckily, we got to work with them to help develop this tool. And the tool that we developed is called Prospect. So the way it started was a simple, uh, well, I won't sim say simple, but a standard Cox proportional analysis where we looked at variables that contribute to outcomes. And in this case, the outcome of interest was the time to first complication of Crohn's disease. So complication meaning a stricture or internal penetrating disease or an abdominal surgery. So something that either is a big surgery or you would think would lead to a big surgery was the outcome of interest. Is how quickly from today in clinic do we think it's gonna be that you reach this point where you need a surgery and have irreversible damage? Can we, you know, what's the time period we have to intervene before irreversible damage kicks in? And you can see the variables are where their disease is, small bowel disease versus colonic disease, perianal disease, and then there's some interesting serologic markers that are in there, one genetic mutation that's in there. 
And if you look at the model uh, concordance or how well the model represents what's happening to these patients in the calibration model, so in the patients we used to develop the model, the concordance index was 0.73, which is pretty good for these sorts of models. And then the whole thing hinged on it, our external validation. And I'll remember the moment we got the external validation data back, having no idea if it was going to work or not, and being thrilled to see that, in fact, it held up an entirely different cohort of patients with the same concordance index and also worked in pediatric patients, too. So we really had a broadly applicable tool that we believe was externally valid in addition to being valid in the model that, that we developed. So here's the input screen. So we get these variables back, and then my terrific research coordinator, Kim Thompson, puts these numbers into the input screen. You can see it includes uh, variables, some demographics, where their disease is, some sliders on the bottom right, where you can input the serologic markers and then click off if their NOD2, uh, which is the genetic mutation, was positive or not. And then I'll show you the screen that the patients see. So this is an example patient. And there are a couple things to point out here. This went through a lot of qualitative work with patient focus groups trying to understand how they wanted to see it. And, you know, all of our patients are right, very intelligent people. They don't necessarily use the same words that we do when you criticize data. But one question, for instance, was how sure are you that it's exactly on that line? Are you sure that line is really that thin? So what they're really saying is what are the confidence intervals around this? So we played with showing confidence intervals, and it's impossible to look at when you actually show confidence intervals if you're not looking at that sort of thing. So that's why it became color-coded, and we recognize that the confidence intervals at least are within that range, and we give some information about this tool that says if you're in the red or the yellow or the, the blue, you're probably in that range. The other thing is the y-axis doesn't show percentages, and that's why uh, that's because we heard from patients that they actually didn't care if it was 82% versus 76%. They just wanted to know if they were low risk, high risk, or somewhere in between. So although on the website that we send them, and this gets sent as a web link to them that they can click on, they could click that percent sign in the top right corner and it changes to percentages, most of our patients said this was far, uh, you know, this is far enough for them to have, and they didn't know, they didn't need to know the exact percentage. They could click on certain things on the screen and learn a little bit more about Crohn's disease and, and their treatment options, and it's personalized for them. So it comes with their name on it, and then it explains up top exactly what we're looking at, that this is looking at the time to their first complication and calls out specifically. And if you hover over certain things, it'll teach you a little bit more about what fistulas are and about internal penetrating diseases. And then it'll also allow you to click on your Crohn's disease so they can see what the variables were that they had because many people said they, they wanted an opportunity to look under the hood and see what was going on and understand what was driving their risks so they can hover over each of these areas so they can learn a little bit more. So uh, I'll show you the trial that we just are wrapping up on this. But in the meantime, we started using this in clinical practice a little bit. And I just wanted to give you a couple of examples of how we use this for patients. So this was a great... A uh, gentleman I met who's a 28-year-old musician from Maine who was pretty recently diagnosed with Crohn's disease, all totally new to him. He never heard of Crohn's disease, didn't know anybody with Crohn's disease. And he came down here for a second opinion, not because he went through all of his drugs and needed to be in a clinical trial. It was, I think the referral said something like, Dr. Siegel, please talk some sense into this gentleman, because he said, I'm not going on any medications. And when I met him, uh, I looked through all of his records. And by all standards, he has what we would consider moderately active Crohn's disease. And he said, hey, I'm smoking marijuana a couple times a day, and I feel great. 
so what's the big whoop? You know, what's the, what's the big problem here? Why would you possibly put me on drugs that cause cancer, tuberculosis, death, histoplasmosis, and the range of things that he read about uh, online when reading about these drugs? So I said, well, can we take some blood from you? And I told him about this prediction model and asked him if we can get a little feedback from him. And we ran him through the model, and it looked like this. And I'm not sure if my nurse Tracy's here, but she would, I think, uh, agree with me that he called within about 24 hours of getting this, said, when can I start that Humira drug you told me about? <laughs> because all of a sudden, he had that fear. Again, I don't know if he was scared, but he recognized and respected the fact that this wasn't about him having abdominal cramps that went away when he smoked marijuana. It was about a destructive progressive disease that we needed to get on top of. And in fact, I'm happy to say he actually went on adalimumab, which is Humira and methotrexate, and had near complete mucosal healing on follow-up. So we did the colonoscopy, and I kind of looked around to make sure it was the right guy. You know, I mean, it looked so good that we couldn't even tell he had Crohn's disease, and he's doing great and, and is thrilled with his progress. And then another example is a 20-year-old uh, amazing woman from University of Vermont who played on their soccer team, who had two jobs, who was an honors student. You know, one of these people you just can't understand exactly how they're doing everything so well, but really high-end in everything she did. And she, again, had somewhere a little less severe Crohn's disease that was, uh, I would call this mild to moderately active, but diffuse disease. So when you have it in the small bowel and the colon, that makes your surgical options a lot fewer, because you're not talking about taking out two or three centimeters of ileum. You're talking about maybe even a proctocolectomy. So she said, you know, she came for the same reason. She actually self-referred herself because she was mad at her doctors because they were, quote, forcing biologic therapy on her. And she said, I play soccer every day. I feel great. If I miss a couple of days, I feel terrible. Can't I just play more soccer and make this go away? And I had the same kind of conversation about Crohn's and said, let us put you through this model that we have and see how it looks. And her model looked like this. And she also called the next day. But this time she said, ha, I told you I didn't need anything. You know, can, can see you doctors are all crazy. I don't need any of that drug. Um, can I just keep doing what I'm doing and see how it goes? So in fact, she came back. Uh, nine months later, she added some supplements to her soccer, so she's also on some form of combination therapy, I guess. <laughs> and she also had complete mucosal healing. Same thing. You looked in there and not a lick of Crohn's disease. So, you know, Crohn's disease is very varied, and people have very different flavors of what happens with their disease over time. And in these cases, which, again, are hand-picked N of two cases, you know, really helped us out. But to show you that we are taking this seriously, we do have a large cluster randomized control trial that we just wrapped up recruitment and just starting to look at the data. And I'll show you that we literally just over the past few weeks unblinded the data, and I'll show you this. So great. The tone that you just heard indicates I can go through it. So I'll keep talking Please if you can listen. The so these were adult patients with Crohn's disease, so we did stay away from pediatric patients who were being offered. So this is, you know, not retrospective cross-sectional. This is prospective. A patient comes into the doctor's office, and the doctor thinks that they should be started on biologics or immunomodulators, and they're offered entry into this trial. So it's a cluster randomized trial where there are 15 sites, eight academic sites, and seven community-based sites. They're randomized at the practice level, so that's what the cluster is. So there are some interesting study design reasons why we did that. But one practice would have the tools to give out, and the other would just go free range in, in the way that they were going to treat patients. And we looked to get about 220 subjects, so about 15 patients per site. 
They had blood tests at baseline that we put into the model, and the intervention group would see the results and have a little bit more information about Crohn's disease, and then we watched what happened to them. Our primary endpoint was what are patients choosing right off? You know, that's what we're looking at, is how quickly are patients getting on the drugs that we think they should get on based on the literature to support treatment. And you can see here, this, the first question was, is prospect working in this group of patients? Are we accurate in predicting who's having complications or not? And as you can see here, if you look at the red bars at the top, it's behaving just the way that we would expect it to. So the patients with low risk had a fairly small group of people who had complications. Moderate risk was about 15%. And then of those high-risk patients, about 30% of them within one year experienced one of these complications. So we were thrilled, of course, to see that the way that the model is predicting things will happen is about the way things are happening to these patients, which was step one, validating prospectively that our model actually works. And then you say, is it changing minds at all? Does it do anything at all to change people's minds and going on them? And remember what I showed you earlier, that about 2 or 3% of people are actually going on combination therapy early on at the first-line treatment. And then this is just, you know, again, a few weeks ago, we unblinded the data. And you can see that in the control group, it was just about that. It was 5% of patients were going on combination therapy. But in our treatment group, it was 25% of patients in the intervention group with a highly statistical p-value. So we're thrilled to see, at least at this early endpoint, that in fact we are influencing decisions. We're also looking at outcomes. So those data aren't quite mature yet. We're looking at two-year outcomes, and we're waiting on that. But all the patients are recruited, and we're following along. So the hope, of course, is those patients that got on the right drugs, in fact, did have better outcomes over time. But more so, did the patients with low risk versus high risk you know, choose things differently? And we'll, we have a lot, a lot of data to look at here, but this is just the very first cut on where we are. So let me change gears a little bit, um, but tied to this is this, this idea of proactive disease. Yeah? Are there any qualitative to that uh, study, uh, looking at how patients feel about the, um, the intervention? Um, so I'll, I'll say that we don't have qualitative work in the classic sense, meaning, you know, sitting down with them and really understanding what they're thinking. But we do have some, uh, I would say, squishier questions <laughs> that we get at some of these ideas is what they thought about it and do they accurately understand it and how it influenced their decisions. So we haven't looked at that yet because it is more qualitative. It needs to be analyzed as opposed to, you know, checking boxes. But, yeah, but we're looking to see. But thanks. So I, I think I've started to make this point, which is we need to stop chasing bad disease and instead get out in front of disease. And, you know, the, the comparison I made when thinking about this is we see lots of different people with lots of different disease states, but things that we hear about all the time are knee osteoarthritis and colon cancer. So, you know, if, if you're thinking about something that when it bothers you, we'll fix it. To me, that's knee osteoarthritis. You can go to the orthopedic group and they'll say, when it hurts enough, come back and we'll, we'll give you a new knee. And when that knee gives up, then we'll give you another new knee. But, but that is the classic, I think, wait until it really bugs you and then we'll fix it. And that's reactive care that we give. But colon cancer, there's no way in the world that, you know, you would tell someone, you know, you only have stage one colon cancer. So when it gets to three or four, then come back and we'll talk to you about chemotherapy. You know, we're thrilled, of course, when we get it early because we know that we can jump on top of it. And this is the other end of the spectrum. And uh, there are others that are even more significant than colon cancer. But again, I'm just a simple gastroenterologist. It's the best I can do. Uh, but this is, you know, being more proactive. And I, I think that with IBD, you know, if you think about where it is on the spectrum, unfortunately, I think that most of 
you know, globally, IBD is being treated in this reactive. When, when the patients get sick enough, they'll come back, and then we'll treat them. But at that point, none of our drugs fix fibrosis and scarring and penetrating disease. They fix inflammation. That happens early. So there's no question to me that IBD is closer to this spectrum, but we just don't think about it that way. And when you look at what happens as natural history of patients with inflammatory bowel disease, the blue line that goes up and down to their symptoms. So, you know, someone comes in with a flare, they get corticosteroids, they get better, they get a flare, they get corticosteroids, they get better. But all the while, damage is building up over time. And what typically happens is this is usually when we start our effective therapies. It's after that second or third flare when someone finally says, I'm really sick of being on steroids. Can I, is there anything else out there? And they get put on good drugs. But what we have to do is frame shift this conversation and get patients in early. So that's really what we're trying to do with Prospect, is try to get patients in sooner and how, that we, how we treat this. And I focus on Crohn's disease almost completely, but it is ulcerative colitis as well. And it's not as obvious to see, but if you have repeated inflammation and damage to your colon, although you don't get strictures, you can, and you don't get penetrating disease, still this can be really an altering disease that damages the colon that's also irreversible. So we have to start thinking about this a bit more as ulcerative colitis and Crohn's disease. But the work we've done is, is Crohn's disease. But I'll tell you that we're also working on Prospect UC right now, which is trying to understand how we predict this for patients with ulcerative colitis as well. So the last part of this is about patient-centered care. And the idea is let's not just stratify them and, and tell them what drug to go on, but how do we really get at what they want and what's most important to them? And if you come to any uh, GI meeting or inflammatory bowel disease meeting, uh, what we're fighting about is the top of this pyramid, about histologic remission and mucosal healing. That's what we're going for. Those are the endpoints. We actually argue about endpoints in clinical trials. Should it be histologic remission, meaning we send it to our great pathologists and they can't even see there's Crohn's disease, or is it good enough that it looks fine through the scope? You know, that's kind of the level of where the gastroenterologists are. But, you know, the patients are on the bottom of this pyramid. And for those of you who you know, remember Psychology 101, you'll recognize this as, as a, a, a pure copy of Maslow's hierarchy of need, of that you have to be able to solve these things on the bottom of this pyramid first before you get to histologic remission. And we have patients, I talked to my uh, patient uh, yesterday afternoon who says, I've been wearing diapers since October. She's a, a, a neonatal intensive care unit nurse in New Hampshire. And, and this is the kind of thing that she's thinking about. She's not thinking about histologic healing. It's how do I get out of the house and get back to work and have a normal life? And I unfortunately think that we're kind of all tied up on the top part of this and forget about the bottom part. So we're, you know, we're here. We're thinking about these are our outcomes in clinical trials and what we should be doing. And I got permission from my patients to show these, but I asked my patients to bring me photos when they're doing what they really enjoy doing. And these are totally northern New England pictures. When I show these in other places, I get made fun of because this is all they think we've got, essentially. <laughs> I love my buddy's snow motorcycle. I, there's probably a cooler word for that in the bottom right. Um, but but this, is, you know, this is what we should be focusing on, is how to get our patients out of the house feeling better and stay like that, not just transiently when they're on prednisone, but to keep them like that over time. So that's really what this last project I'll show you is about, which is called IBD Course, which is about improving the quality of IBD patient care. This is um, a, a huge group of people who have been working on this, and uh, in particular, my colleague Gil Melman, who's at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. And this is what was part of the motivation, all the work that I had already said 
uh, but also talking about the variation of care. And again, you could, you're starting to get the theme that I, I take smart ideas that my Dartmouth colleagues have, and I, I trick the rest of the GI world thinking they're my ideas. That variation of care is something that I came up with. Yet, of course, this is TDI and Jack Wenberg's work and, and Paul Batalda and all the work that people are doing. And we looked at what's the variation of use of biologics across the United States. And here you could see, and you may not be able to see it that well, but the variation in patients with Crohn's disease who are getting biologic therapy. So this isn't where patients are with Crohn's disease. This is of patients with Crohn's disease, what proportion of them are getting treated with biologic therapy? And it ranges from close to 0% to almost 70%. And I would tell you that there's no reason that I can think of that by zip code, disease severity should alter so much that it would dictate this amount of variation. And as I've learned from Jack Winberg and others, that variation is a representative of poor quality, that there's something that we need to do better here. I don't know what the right number is, but there's a lot of people doing it wrong if it's all over the board, and we have to try to get on the same page. So the premise is working on this partnership with co-production, which I give great credit to Gene Nelson and his group at TDI and Paul Batalden to really help us spread this idea into inflammatory bowel diseases. We need to bring patients into the mix. We need to understand what they're worried about, but we also need to bring the evidence into this as well and have the have the physicians come through. And we often say that every office visit with our patients, there's, there are two experts in the room. There are us as the inflammatory bowel disease experts and the patients who know them and know their disease better than anybody on the planet. And we need to somehow combine those. And that's this idea of uh, patients feeding forward data to us with patient-reported outcomes and us feeding forward our knowledge using a shared data platform that I'll show you briefly, and then using a bunch of different quality improvement methods of how we can not just measure quality, but actually intervene and focus on improving quality. And the, the project is called IBD Chorus, and we often talk about it being quality-driven and care-focused. So the most patient-centered thing we do is not the intent of what we started talking about. We have this pre-visit survey that we ask patients electronically, and they get an email before every visit. And although we have a lot of questions on it, the number one question that became the most important thing I think we've done in the entire program is just ask them a simple question, which is, what is your number one concern or goal related to your IBD? And point them away from this having to be about symptoms. We say this could be related to a specific symptom, worry about the future, or how IBD might impact an upcoming life event. And we get these amazing answers from them before we walk into the visit so we know exactly what they're thinking about and worried about, as opposed to waiting to the last 10 seconds of the visit when they say, oh, I forgot to ask you, is it safe to get pregnant on these drugs? And then you say, oh, man, oh, boy, tell the next patient we're going to be a little while. So it really allows us to, to focus right in on what they're thinking at that visit and something that we're we're very proud to start to spread throughout the country. So this is what the dashboard looks like. I don't intend to go through every piece here, but you can see that the number one concern is right there. I walk into the office visit with this on my laptop, and I show it to the patient when I sit down. It's the first thing I do, and it's how I start the office visit. We have their symptoms already there, so I don't have to spend 10 minutes pulling out from them. How many bowel moves are you having? Is there any blood? They've already answered those questions, and I know what I'm walking into. So we could really focus the rest of it around what their needs are and what we need to focus on to, uh, to update their care. And we love this term, again, that we stole from our colleagues here about a collaboratory, that we now have 30 GI practices across the country that we're working with, with 40,000 or more patients, with practices with, with a huge range. Each practice, we ask to have at least a team uh, a physician that's in uh, the lead uh, of the group, 
their nurse or a coordinator, and all sites are also being invited to ask patients to be included here. And we've tried to really keep a nice mix of community-based and large academic practices. And then we have webinars, either monthly or every other month, where every site is on. And then we have in-person learning sessions. The next one's coming up next week, where we get everybody together. I think we have about 100 people coming to this next one, where we sit down and really share experiences and understand how we can work on quality together. You can see our map is filling out. We have a bit of a cluster in, in uh, the Northeast, but we're starting to add sites across the country and really excited to focus on the outcomes which are developed with patients to understand what are the most important things for their care that we need to focus on. And then the tool that has come out of this is something we call population health, which is looking at, in my practice now, something I haven't been able to do before, is sort my patients based on disease activity, based on their complications based on the drugs that are on and quickly get a look at show me my patients who have been in the emergency room in the past six months. Those are the patients we really want to focus on and get in right away as opposed to the patients that have been doing just fine. And then look at for interventions for these high-risk patients. So lots of work to be done here. It's still even in the early phases despite the fact that it's been a few years, but really making some progress in how we can use this program again called IBD Chorus. The goal is to spread it to 90 sites over the next three years. It's a bit of a uh, high bar that we set for ourselves, but I think once we do that, we're going to have probably the best and most sophisticated prospective population-based patient-reported database in the world, and we're going to learn a tremendous amount about patients and how we could bring this forward. So, in summary, uh, I don't think we're doing a very good job with our patients with IBD. I think we have the tools to do it, uh, but we're not getting patients the right drugs at the right time in the right situations. We're not optimizing the, optimizing the care that we should be. We have the opportunity to, but it's not getting out there in the way that we need it to be. But we do have the chance to do this. And I'm not suggesting that the two tools I showed you are the only ways to do it. I, I like to think they're two of a hundred tools that will be developed to help us spread what we've learned and get uh, get our good treatments to the right patients and let the patients who have low-risk disease be just fine and save an amazing amount of cost as well by not giving the wrong drugs to the wrong patients. And we need to refocus on this idea of personalized care. We've all gotten so busy that it's hard to sit down and ask your patients what's really bugging you. You know, what really are you worried about? And by asking a simple question like this, I would tell you this could be translated to any of our practices, is just ask them what you're really worried about. This office visit, maybe one of you taught me this. I feel like this is something that, John, you would have taught me, is, you know, their office visit when they come in, although it might be one of 20 patients that day for you, is probably the most important thing that's happened to them over the past three or six months or maybe even the year. And we need to respect the fact that they're there with a lot of angst and a lot of worry and that we need to address that worry. And if we don't ask them, they're simply just not going to tell us. So to finish, I just want to say thank you to the great people I've had to work with on, on both of these study teams. We have a number of different programs around inflammatory bowel disease. I see Jay Bucky in the audience. We're working on some really cool stuff around hyperbaric oxygen in UC. Uh, but the programs I showed you today have certainly been a, a community of people that have really been a, a great help. I want to make sure I recognize uh, my section of gastroenterology and hepatology that I'm honored to work with every single day since the moment I started my fellowship and really um, just a thrill to work with every single one of them, and certainly to my patients because they're the ones who've taught me probably more than anybody else. So thank you. Thank you, Kelly. Uh, can I pick? Because uh, there's some I'm worried about. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's okay. No, go ahead. <laughs> sure. Thank you. That's great.
I was thinking about your cool spaghetti flowchart thing. Yeah, the Sankey diagram. Sankey diagram and all those prednisone starters. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking one of the issues, and you alluded to it later, is that when people first come in, we don't know that they have Crohn's disease. We know that they have something IBD-ish. It seems like yeah. the, the prednisone thing happens in part because of the timing of the diagnosis relative to the, yeah. right? And so how do you deal with, with that aspect? I mean, are you advising us even to think differently about those people and not give them steroids at the beginning? You know, how, how should we handle the diagnosis phase? Yes. Um, you know, Bob Simmons would call that the sash point. The, uh, you know, you'll remember him saying this in M&M for many years, the steroids almost started here. Um, and, and that's what happens. There's some sort of inflammation and you give it. You know, rarely is IBD an emergency to treat. If it is, they're not getting steroids. They're in the operating room, right? So I, I think almost always we have an opportunity to think it through. I, I think Crohn's disease more than ulcerative colitis, if, if someone's in the hospital here with a new diagnosis of ulcerative colitis and they just came out of the endoscopy suite and then the patient rolls back to their room with their report you know, taped to their chest that says ulcerative colitis, moderate to severe, starting IV hydrocortisone is the right thing to do in most cases. But when you're talking about chronic disease management, and aside from these situations, I think you always have time to think it through. There's some data to show that corticosteroids actually makes things worse, right? I mean, we don't give steroids to heal anything. You know, in other diseases, or maybe almost anything, you know, steroids help treat their their symptoms, but rarely lead to mucosal healing and healing. And there's some worry that they lead to more fistulas and more penetrating disease. So we do try very hard to keep our patients off. I would say, uh, with Crohn's disease in particular, it's unusual that we'll start a new patient with a new diagnosis on on corticosteroids or systemic corticosteroids, at least. Corey, that was a great talk and a lot of lessons for those of us who deal with chronic disease. I was curious when you developed your model um, why you didn't choose to also show their anticipated course if they were treated. Mm -hmm. Is that because the patients didn't think that was going to be informative or is that because there's no data to do that? Because it seems to me if you show them a graph showing what will happen yeah. if you're not treated and if you, what will happen if you are not treated or are Yeah, treated. like this is your brain on drugs. Right, yeah. Uh, we did think about it. Thank you. It's a really important question. So we can do it, um, but when you get down to the the cell size of patients that were treated with individual drugs in each individual scenario, it's so small that the confidence intervals are so huge that it's just not fair. I could show it to you, and we actually have buttons that we've made go away in the program, but, you know, with a few keystrokes from Lori, she could make those buttons emerge, and we can click on them and show you how it goes up and down. Um, and they do go up and down, but it just isn't really fair. That's number one. Number two, from a regulatory standpoint, this is really interesting. So we heard from the FDA that as it stands right now, this is not a medical device. It's a decision-making tool. But once you show what different drugs do, it's now become a medical device, which is a whole different regulatory pathway that would have held up our trial probably for years, if not ever. So we did, so there are two good reasons we didn't do it, but that is something we'd like to do in the future as we now have a little more time to, now that we have some evidence that it works and we have some more time to think about it. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, that's the guy. Um, the premise for the tool is to improve patient compliance or patient adherence or patient understanding of what the options are. Mm -hmm. So, and you started off with, Lovely data showing that this is a huge problem, and I think it was North America or the United States. Yeah, U.S., yeah. Okay. So how big of a problem is this in Canada? 
for Norway. Yeah. Uh, thanks. That was a much easier question than I thought you were going to ask me. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we're we're trying to figure that out. I actually, when I presented the uh, that Sankey diagram uh, at our major meeting just this past year, I grabbed the author of that Lancet article, the top-down therapy article, named Gert Hans, who I've you know fortunately become friends with over the years and I made him come <laughs> to see the presentation and he waited for me afterwards and said we need to do this in Europe he said I think you're exactly right uh, we haven't looked at this in Europe at all and now we're actually collaborating with him to look in, in Europe Canada we could probably get at it as well we just haven't done that yet but it's uh, it's a really important question I suspect there's much of the same and his impression again he's in uh, Amsterdam so I don't know if he has a great view of what's going on in the rest of Europe but uh, we're, we're starting to understand this to see if it's a problem elsewhere. So in contrast, this is not something a single-payer system would fix? I don't think so. No, I think this is a doctor-patient interaction problem, not a payer problem. So this is great. I get to ask a question. Oh. So, so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the logistical challenges of implementing tools yeah. like this, particularly um, in rural areas and in community practices that may, might, may not have the same level of IT support. Yeah. Um, you know, we do a lot of this type of stuff in primary care, and it can be hard to get it to all patients. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a challenge, for sure. And, you know, when I gave my disclosure earlier about, you know, that we've set up a company around Prospect, it's the idea is, you know, we can write a paper about this all day long and give a talk at meetings, but that doesn't mean people are going to learn about it and use it. So we need some help and, and funding to, like, get it out there and figure out how to get people to use it. It's probably easy. Um, I actually started to put a grant together to think through how to combine prospect or things like prospect and telemedicine. So I also have been really interested in telemedicine and what I call tele-IBD, which some of us are interested in. And, and this has been a huge uh, advance for my patients who are coming from Maine and New York and, 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 and even just uh, you know, southern New Hampshire that can't take a day off to come. So what we can do with our telehealth program that we have here, you know, already existing with the technology, is just sh bring up Prospect, and I've done this, and show them. And the, the grant idea is working with their local primary care doctors so that they can send off blood tests, get the results, and then we could have a sort of three-way you know, call with all of us to talk about how to get patients treated. And the idea is trying to get patients in sooner. I think about this like we talked about stroke probably 20 years ago, right? I, I mean, the timing is different, but the idea is we need to educate and get people in and get them on the right drugs quickly, and then we can deal with the chronic management later. Any other questions? Thank you, Corey, for a not surprisingly.